them. Right now, though, talking about the discovery of 215 bodies of children at a former residential school site in Kamloops. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Peter Millibar. He is a BC Liberal MLA for Kamloops North Thompson, also the critic for Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation. Thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Just wish it was under uh, under happier circumstances, that's for sure. Uh, I think everybody wishes that and now looking to see kind of what the next steps are or what's going to happen. I want to play for you a quick clip. This is Murray Rankin, who, as you know, is the Minister of Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation in BC. He was speaking earlier on the program, uh, on the Mike Smith show, about this. They, they've been clear that these were preliminary uh, findings and they wanted to get the news out just as soon as they could. But there may be other, uh, there will be more work to be done, no doubt, there. And of course, several nations across the province have said, well, what about the schools where, where, where our children, or rather our, our, our parents or grandparents uh, uh, attended. For example, Lower Post is the site of uh, horrific uh, uh, tales. Uh, uh, the Premier uh, was moved to tears when he went to Lower Post and I think persuaded the federal minister, uh, ministers to come on board and uh, that's, that residential school is being torn down. So that was Murray Rankin speaking earlier. The they he is referring to, he's talking about the First Nations that released the information about the fact that they had been able to use equipment and find this mass grave. What are your thoughts on what the province needs to do or what role does the province play in what happens next? Well, certainly I, myself and, and uh, Todd Stone, who's Camel Silk Thompson, uh, so we, we kind of share the, the traditional territories of, of where this all took place. Um, have have said from the very beginning that what we need to do is, is support uh, the Tecumseh uh, in any way possible and, and take our lead from them. And and certainly when Minister Rankin reached out to to both Todd and myself, uh, we conveyed that to him, and and he seemed to be in agreement. Uh, it's very important, and to this point, uh, the Tecumseh have been doing that in terms of uh, doing things in a very culturally sensitive way. Uh, respecting their traditions and, and um, culture, and, and I think it's very important for us to to make sure that we continue that on and and take our lead from them and, and make sure they have all the resources they need to to do things in, in a proper way uh, and provide the the dignity of of proper uh, uh, remembrance uh, for these uh, 215 children. Have you been to the site since this was revealed? Since this information came to light last week. I, I was over, uh, they had a big drum drum circle. We have a very large um, arbor that the band does for um, for powwows and community gatherings. And so uh, they had a, a drum circle there on, on Friday and attended that. And then they had another one. They've been having them every night. And I, I was able to go to the one on Saturday before coming to Victoria. So um, I don't know exactly where the location uh, of the scan was done. And, and nor, frankly, do, uh, do uh, I feel it's my place to, to impose myself in finding that information out. But certainly, uh, Cookby, uh, Casimir, and myself have a long, long-standing working relationship, and, and we work well together. And so, uh, she knows that uh, she has our full support in terms of, of um, you know, taking our lead from her and her council, and and making sure uh, that uh, as supports are needed, we're there to help advocate for them if, if they're not forthcoming. Uh, because it, it seems like, and again, there there are so many questions right now, and 
and not that you want to, to make one more important than the other, but there's the issue of the fact that we've had a truth and reconciliation report. In that report, I think it was determined that more than 4,000 children died because of residential schools. We now have this that's been uncovered. So there's the question of how do we go about dealing with that and what happens next? But then it seems like there's also another role for the province uh, where there's a coroner that needs to be called in. There needs to be an investigation into what exactly we're looking at. Well, exactly. And, and so, again, that's why it's it's very important that um, you know, these remains are dealt with in, in an appropriate way with uh, the leadership and the direction of of uh, the chief and council and, and their uh, knowledge keepers and, and um, cultural uh, protectors. We, we want to make sure this is done in a, in a right way, uh, that uh, things are done properly. Uh, we don't know the ages. We know we know roughly the ages of, of the children, and unfortunately it's quite a wide range of ages, from approximately three to uh, early teens, it looks like, based on the size of skeletal uh, sizes, uh, apparently. Uh, what we don't know is, is uh, when this all occurred, uh, how recent in the past or not. It doesn't make it uh, any better, uh, but it certainly provides more context and, and uh, um, it may provide more answers then as to what happened or didn't happen and, and what time frames we're looking at. But that's going to take some time, uh, and we're going to, again, have to um, uh, be very sensitive in making sure that, um, you know, um, we are uh, following uh, traditional methods in terms of uh, honoring those uh, those that are deceased in this unmarked uh, area. Do you think it will lead to that in that you mentioned that, that you have a good working relationship with the chief, Chief Casimir? This was something, though, again, that was recommended in the Truth and Reconciliation Report, which came out, I think, uh, 2009. There was a recommendation in there that there should be funds. There should be, and I know it wasn't a provincial government, but it was calling on the federal government to fund a search for uh, for graves just like this one that's that's been uncovered. Do you think this will lead to finally that being addressed or funding going to that? Well, that, that's certainly a question, I think, uh, for the Prime Minister and, and federal politicians to, to answer in terms of why my understanding was that recommendation would have been in around the million and a half dollar mark uh, to, to deal with the country. Uh, why something of that uh, uh, scope when you're, you're talking uh, our federal budget, it's, it's a rounding error and then some. Um, it wasn't funded. Um, you know, that's for them to answer. My understanding is that uh, the funding to use this technology uh, to make this, this current discovery was uh, through the provincial government, uh, which is good to hear if, if uh, that is indeed what happened and every indication is that way. So, again, I think, um, you know, we, we, need to, we, we need to get past, uh, um, you know, whose jurisdiction is what. We need to get down to actually uh, true, meaningful action and deliverables um, that the First Nations across this country have been demanding for a long time. And, and certainly in British Columbia, um, you know, we, we need to make sure um, as we've passed DRIPA and, and every, uh, every other document like that, um, you know, there's, there, we go all the way back to the Wilfrid uh, Laurier Memorial that was signed in Kamloops in 1910 with no action taken from that. Uh, I think uh, Indigenous nations are, are long past the point of needing another document. They need actual action uh, to back up whatever document it's written in. And do you think that this will be enough, as horrible, as tragic as this is, could this finally be what gets that action and gets more than, like you say, signing memos, signing documents, more than just words? 
Well, that's the hope. And, and um, you know, I guess, um, you know, time will tell whether or not um, um, there, there's meaningful uh, action as a result of this. Um, that's certainly my hope. I think that's uh, Chief and Council's hope in, in Kamloops. And it's something that uh, I think we as a, as a population need to come to terms with and, and say enough is enough. Um, you know, the time for talk has long since passed. And meaningful action and meaningful deliverables are what's actually needed. Is it something that you're seeing when you mentioned uh, Murray Rankin as well and, and Todd Stone? Is it something you're seeing as far as the discussion, at least, that it's something where we can put partisan politics aside and figure out exactly what can and should be done? Well, absolutely. Um, you know, there's there's a time and a place and then there are certain topics that you can obviously get much more uh, partisan in, in your opinions or, or ideological belief in. Um, you know, I don't think that there's a, there's a large separation of, of any of that when it comes to um, trying to deal with past wrongs and trying to actually uh, make sure that um, uh, things are being done in a good way with, with Indigenous nations across this province. Um, this may be the flashpoint in Kamloops, but um, as you as you referenced at the top, there are a lot of other former school sites in British Columbia, and, and uh, there's no reason to believe uh, that there wouldn't have been similar uh, situations, uh, unfortunately, taking place uh, throughout this province and throughout this country. And it will be incumbent on not just uh, the province of BC, but the federal government and other provincial governments um, to start to address this in, in, a, in a proper way and in a way that... Um, can hopefully start to to bring a little bit of closure um, to some of these uh, communities and, and the people that were so horribly impacted uh, by the residential school system. There there should no longer be any doubt uh, in anyone's mind uh, about uh, the pure brutality and, and how, frankly, evil these places were and, and turned out to be uh, for Indigenous communities. Uh, if people still have any doubts, um, I, I really have to question how they could possibly have that. All right. Peter Millibar, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much. Thanks for being with us. Well, there was a story in the Vancouver Sun. There is a story in the Vancouver Sun today, and it has to do with the Broadway subway. But specifically, it has to do about some who say there is something missing from this new subway system. They would like to see bathrooms, washrooms, something that everybody on the planet uses at some point. It's something that Council has talked about. It's something that TransLink has talked about. So where are we on the public washroom situation? Sarah Kirby Young joins me now, a Vancouver City Councillor. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Jill. How are you doing? Very well. How about you? Good, thank you. I, I remember listening in on the the uh, online council meeting when this was a topic. I was actually at the TransLink meeting. It was pre-pandemic, so I was there in per- person when they talked to, about washrooms on transit uh, during these uh, on these very busy lines. What is council's position when it comes to washrooms on the new Broadway subway line? So, council's city of Vancouver council's position was abundantly clear, um, no ambiguity. It was fully unanimous support from council for um, Mayor Stewart to advocate through the Mayor's Council to ensure that there are accessible public washrooms in every station in the Millennium Line um, Broadway extension on opening day. Um, And that means um, each station, which is not currently the case, is only slated to be at two, which is at Broadway and Arbutus stations, but also that they are accessible without the need of having to call an attendant. In other words, they're not locked and you have to call somebody and wait and that attendant may not be in the station. 
um, but they're easy access. The public can simply go in and out as they need to. So it's not going to be like you said. So the, the, the plan as it is now is to have them in two stations, the, the Broadway and the Arbutus station. Did you hear back from TransLink as far as their response to this uh, push from council? Uh, we, we've heard, uh, there's been a lot of dialogue with TransLink over the past years. And as you referenced that decision, um, that it was in 2018 that TransLink took to committing to a more accessible, um, sort of transit and to a washroom strategy implementation. But that was three years ago and we have a major capital project here. So surely this is the time and the opportunity to move forward. Um, a key stumbling block always seems to be the discussion around the operating costs. It's not just, um, you know, roughing in the space um, or making sure that all the plumbing is there for opening day. But, you know, what are the operation costs going to be and how is that going to be maintained moving forward? But it's a fundamental and basic human right. When you have to go, you have to go. And certainly it's been a topic uh, for people. Uh, we've talked about it in the past. Uh, and that has always come up as far as the cost, the cost of maintenance, of cleaning, making sure there are safe, accessible uh, spaces. Uh, could the city go about then, if the city wasn't or isn't uh, satisfied with the number of washrooms, there only being washrooms at two of the new stations, could the city go on its own and say put in the the freestanding washrooms that we're, we're seeing? Uh, there was certainly a lot of talk about the one uh, for Cooper's Park. Could the city put, not put those outside of stations if it wanted to? Yeah, absolutely. But, but I think that that sort of really misses the key responsibility here that we've got a major public tax funded capital project, right? Incredibly expensive. And why would we not be ensuring that that is you know, all of those facilities are included and roughed in? And they are looking to sort of rough it in, but not to have them available and open on opening day. So to me, it doesn't make sense to sort of work around the problem. Um, I think that the issue needs to be how do we deliver washrooms on a major basic public service like transit, um, as opposed to coming out the city coming out with workarounds and trying to put um, other standalone locations outside. Uh, that was one of the lines I think that isn't sitting well with people as well, saying that the stations will be designed, even the ones that will have uh, the the access the the washrooms, saying that they will be designed to accommodate accessible washrooms in the fair paid zone in the future, which doesn't really help anybody uh, if we have no idea when that might be. Well, that's exactly it, and I think with a project of this this magnitude and the cost, it, it really is inconsequential in terms of the infrastructure. It comes down to the operating, but I would argue, too, what is the cost to human dignity of not providing those? Um, and also, we're seeing increasingly in terms of social disorder and issues on the streets that if people um, don't go, we have all those impacts in terms of, you know, dirty streets and, you know, the impact on public health and sanitation, because sometimes people, it, it's a desperate situation. People just have to do it, so... Um, I think that the cost is too great, and I think that it doesn't make sense to have a major infrastructure project like this without ensuring that you've got equity um, for pe- and services for people. It's just the bottom line. We've seen issues as well, and many people have brought this up, that during the pandemic, finding publicly accessible washrooms has become even more difficult with buildings or businesses that may have been closed temporarily, uh, restaurants not wanting people coming in to use the washroom unless they purchase something. Uh, it's also become an issue of... of what people are doing in the washrooms, which isn't always just what the washrooms are built for. And then it becomes a safety issue and another uh, another issue for, for whether it's a business owner. So how do you deal with that? And at, at what expense, I guess, too, would it be to make sure that if every station has accessible washrooms, who's going to be in charge of them to make sure uh, they are clean, that they are safe, and they stay that way? 
Well, you, you touched on a lot there. So in terms of your point around the pandemic has really exacerbated the lack of public washrooms. We've always had a shortage in the city of Vancouver. And so when you don't have private business providing them, um, that that impact has been pretty clear, um, especially on, on from an equity perspective for marginalized people in society. And for all those groups that don't feel comfortable traveling um, from home if they know those facilities aren't going to be there, whether it's seniors or families and so on. So I think that's fundamental to invest in them. Um, in terms of the technology, there's a lot, um, such as the Portland Loo and others that are self-cleaning, um, or you know, after a period of time, potentially, you know, they can be translucent, so you can see inside when it's not in use, and could provide signals for people to check regularly on those washrooms to make sure that people are okay. Um, so if you're dealing with any issues in terms of um, addiction or otherwise, so there's a lot in terms of technology, but I think a lot of it comes down to will to fund these um, because they do require a degree of maintenance. Although we have some great um, technology now like self-cleaning washrooms that can you know, s- simply flush themselves down after each user as well. Uh, one of the other concerns about this as well is not having paired elevators in all of the stations. And Ben Dooley, who produces this program, has been on the station talking about that at length. Uh, he uses a wheelchair. He, he makes no uh, bones about that, but has had many a time when he was coming into the office where he'd have to get off at a completely different station because the elevators were broken. Uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that there are people that... that again, will be very upset that they are single elevators at a lot of the stations rather than the paired. Well, you know, again, like the cost to have paired elevators in the scope of, you know, sort of the hundreds of millions that are being spent on this project, it's really not significant, but the cost to people is huge. And, you know, look at somebody like Ben, that means that he can't get to work. Um, he might be stuck at a station, he has to carry on to another one. And it's a real, it's a very real human impact. So, this to me is really about sort of fundamentally, do we believe in accessibility and in providing these public services that are absolutely core or do we not? Um, and so, you know, having paired elevators at only two of the half dozen stations along the Broadway Millennium Line extension, again, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So it's it's really about priorities. Um, and, and I think that we need to ensure that those are in there because it's not acceptable to say, OK, if you're able bodied, um, you can you have the ability to travel on the Millennium Line today. And if you're not, well, sorry, our elevators are, are down and you're out of luck. That's, that just doesn't cut it. What happens now then? Like you said, council was unanimous on this as far as taking it to the mayor's council. It sounds like the plan is already in place for how it's going to be built. So what do you do next as a council? So um, council, with their unanimous support of the motion, asked the mayor to address this through the mayor's council. Um, And the mayor's council is starting to be very um, active on this, but it's going to require, I think, continued advocacy. Um, because as you see now, you can see this, the hoarding going up on those stations and construction work is beginning. So um, that advocacy needs to happen pretty quickly to make sure that it, uh, it they get built in and those facilities are there on opening day. All right. We will check back on this uh, again uh, in the future for sure. Councillor Kirby Young, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Joe. Always a pleasure. We have to acknowledge the truth. Residential schools were a reality, a tragedy that existed here in our country, and we have to own up to it. Kids were taken from their families, returned damaged or not returned at all with no explanations. That was Justin Trudeau speaking about the discovery of the bodies of at least 215 children at that former residential school site in Kamloops. We're going to talk about this some more. And joining me now is Charlie Angus, the NDP MP for Timmins James Bay, also the ethics critic. Thank you so much for being with us today. 
Thank you so much for having me on the show. What? How do you respond to hearing that from the Prime Minister? Well, the problem with the Prime Minister's position is that his government has spent over $9 million fighting this generation of First Nation kids. The finding of these bodies of the 215 children has sent literally shockwaves of grief and trauma in community after community across this country. I've been on the phone all weekend with people from Treaty 9 who suffered horrifically uh, in the residential schools. And we need concrete action because this is a war against Indigenous children and it's still going on. So I asked the Prime Minister's uh, ministers today and, and the legal battle with, against kids. Get them the rights that they deserve. But this government's not doing that. So it's emotion I'm hearing from them. I'm hearing some crocodile tears, but we're not seeing the steps that are needed to, to, to address the enormity of the crimes that have been committed against these children. Uh, I would imagine you're talking about as well, there, there have been the rulings uh, talking about the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, uh, the applicability of something called Jordan's Principle, uh, about who is responsible, who provides services to First Nations children. How, how can you kind of have both or have it both ways, uh, as you said, with the Prime Minister uh, saying this and making these emotional uh, speeches about this, but at the same time, like you said, spending millions of dollars fighting First Nations children in court? Well, I think the connection is very clear, is that um, we had a policy that forcibly took children from their families in a deliberate government policy to destroy their identity. And these children basically were disappeared. And, and the story we see in Kamloops is horrific. And we know there's many other residential schools where many children disappeared as well. But we also have today uh, the child welfare system that if you've ever talked to people who've been in it up close, children are disappeared into this system. I know multiple, multiple children who died far from home, died uh, com- isolated, completely without their cultural supports because of this systemic discrimination. So it is an ongoing issue. And we need to say as Canadians, it's going to stop. The most valuable resource in our country is not the oil. It's not diamonds. It's not gold or copper. It's this young generation of children, and we have to make it right for them. When we talk about uh, this information and the fact that on Thursday, when that news broke, when the the First Nation that found the the mass grave made it public, uh, again, we were told these are preliminary findings, that more work is being done. Uh, I mean, the nation kind of stopped, I think, and shook our heads and tried to make sense of this. Not that you can make sense of it, but tried to understand really the depth of what we were hearing. But that also comes in years after the Truth and Reconciliation Report. It comes years after 94 recommendations were made. It, it comes years after there, there's been all of this talk, but not really any action. So do you think this will make a difference? Um, I think this has really uh, galvanized def- definitely First Nation people across the country. There's a lot of anger, a lot of righteous trauma, because uh, just this past weekend, I learned of four children in my region who never came home. These weren't stories that are documented in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I think this has unearthed a lot of trauma that the communities have experienced. And they're demanding action. We had the Truth and Reconciliation. It was an incredible report, but so many of those recommendations haven't been followed through. You know, this, this crime against these children happened at a Catholic residential school. Three years ago, the Parliament of Canada called on the Pope to be part of the process to to apologize 
they ha- we've heard zero from the church. We know that the Catholic Church was the one institution that refused uh, to pay its share of the indemnities. The other Christian orders who were involved did. And we know that many of the Christ- Catholic orders still haven't turned over documents. Um, and I think we've got to play tougher. We need to be able to investigate every one of these sites. We should be doing the forensic uh, audits that are necessary to see what is in those fields. And if those documents aren't forthcoming, I'd say criminal charges. These were crimes committed against innocent children, and we can't pussyfoot around on this anymore. The the people deserve answers. Uh, And again, looking back to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report back in 2009, it was at that point, too, there was a call made that funding be made available to find unmarked graves, to find exactly what we learned about on Thursday. I think it was one and a half million dollars. That didn't happen at the time. Uh, Do you think this will lead to or should this lead to it would, I think, cost more than that now, but not that you can put a price on it. Should this lead to, if nothing else, a, a bare minimum? the funding to to figure out if if there's a call for that to find if there are and i think people would believe that there are more of these Uh, i definitely think we've got to move beyond i heard today the government talking about doing this in a culturally sensitive manner whenever i hear the government say culturally sensitive matter it means they're putting the blame on first nations and they're not coming for put the money on the table and say we will go where people are asked us to go because in my region that had the horrific St. Anne's Residential School, we've tried for years uh, to, to get the proper uh, investigation for the bodies that families know are out there. And we've never, ever, like the police have come up, the OPP and the provincial police have tried, but we just never had the, they didn't have the resources or the tools. And this trauma is in so many communities. So let's do it. It has to be done. We're talking about crimes, crimes of humanity against children. It's not something that's historic. It's still being lived now. Uh, When you talk about the fact, uh, criminality of this, does it change the response in that this discovery, as we know, was led by the First Nation, by by the the First Nation in the area, the Tecumloops, and will will continue to be led but does it change anything that uh, a coroner needs to be called in, that the site needs to be, uh, well, far more work needs to be done? And if it becomes a criminal investigation, what does that change? Well, I think these are criminal investigations because these are children who are buried without dignity. Um, their families were never told. And I know anecdotally from families I've spoken to who've lost loved ones, some of these children would have most likely died from abuse. They died from abuse in other institutions. We know issues of the child rapes and the forced abortions. Uh, I mean, these are horrific stories that I don't even like to mention, but we need to put it in the frame of the crimes that were committed against these children. This is a crime scene. Uh, and the fact that the church covered it up uh, shows a level of culpability that they have to be accountable for. I grew up in the Catholic Church. I went to Catholic school. My kids went to Catholic school. But I'll be damned if these guys are going to get off with this uh, without some level of accountability. We need to be able to investigate these sites. We need to know how many bodies there are, and we need to know who's responsible. And, and that is the steps that have to be taken now. So how do you make that happen, though, when, like you said, the Catholic Church refused to pay their fair share of compensation? Uh, They've not issued an apology. They've not turned over documents that they've been asked to. How does that change? I I think that we trusted in the truth and reconciliation. It was about healing and reconciliation. But we're talking really about criminal acts. And, you know, I, I refer your listeners to the 
to the huge sex scandals that broke in the 1990s and that it took the threat of a grand jury indictment in Boston to bring down the cardinal at the biggest cardinal in the United States and get them to turn over the documents. In those cases, in the sexual abuse cases in Boston and other cities, they were not turning over the documents. The orders still haven't turned over a number of the key documents relating to very controversial residential schools. They say, oh, you know, the people are old, oh, it's really complicated, oh, we're having a hard time finding them. I mean, all these documents are stored at the Vatican. All these documents are stored in the Mother House, and they need to turn it over. You know, we, we need to frame this as the criminal acts that were committed, and there has to be some culpability now. What do you think would be the key information that we could get if by getting access to those documents? I think one of the things that really disturbs the families that I've spoken to um, is that they know children were disappeared. And often there's no record that they were ever at the school. We need to start to, to give name to those children so that their families can, can grieve. Because even many decades later, I, I know three little boys who went missing at, in my region. Their family still grieves for them, and they never accepted the uh, story that, oh, they just they drowned in a river and they went missing. There's a lot of other stories of what the children saw. And so we need to say, well, who were these children? What do we know of them? Maybe in the early days, many died, could have died from tuberculosis, but that still uh, means that there's an obligation to give them a name, that we can give them a proper burial so that we can get uh, proper closure on this. It, this is massively traumatic for the communities. Uh, the flags at many government buildings are now flying uh, at half-mast. Uh, there are petitions, uh, there are calls uh, to do more to acknowledge this. How do you hold the government to account and make sure that it's not just a symbolic gesture, it's not just lowering the flag, that there will actually be action this time? Well, certainly the New Democrats are going to lead a very strong fight in the House of Commons. Uh, we're pushing my, our leader, Jagmeet Singh, push for an emergency debate so we can start to lay out some of these issues. And, and I have to say, we're all trying to get our heads around this. I'm learning so much of what needs to be done from the First Nation people who are calling me and saying, this is what has to happen. Like, so I think that, that cooperation with the Indigenous people who know the experience on the ground. But there's going to need to be a number of steps that we put on the table that are going to be forced, maybe by votes, uh, that the Liberal government are going to have to meet. I think part of that is definitely going to have to be making sure that we have the funds to do the investigations in the communities where people ask for it. We need to get the government to stop fighting the children in court. And in my region, they're still fighting the the St. Anne's residential school survivors. Reconciliation is about saying a massive crime was committed and we're going to fix it. It's not about uh, using lawyers to deny compensation and, and, and limiting liability. We're looking at massive crimes that were committed, and that's how we have to frame that these are crimes against humanity that have been committed. How many other institutions are the bodies buried? How many children are still missing? I think it's. I think we all, and it's the one thing I believe about Canadians, I think Canadians all want to do the right thing here. So let's just do it. And would also, I would imagine anyone listening to this or listening to the words of the Prime Minister, and this has been brought up repeatedly in the past few days, here's somebody who promised clean drinking water and has not been able to, for whatever reason, deliver on that promise. How do we trust this Prime Minister and this party is going to deliver on this? Well, that's a very good point because... 
uh, that five-year promise from the get-go, it was underfunded. It did not it did not meet credible uh, targets, and people warned them about it. Now we're waiting, and we'll be waiting another five years on this. I think the prime minister came in with so much goodwill uh, with his promise of reconciliation, and he's needlessly burned it. Um, we can do this as a nation. It's the least we can do. Um, we can make sure that the children are compensated for losing this generation. These are things that everyone, I think, we recognize is about moving our nation forward. So it's really about the prime minister needing to actually recognize it. Just saying nice things isn't the same thing as doing justice. All right, Charlie Angus, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much uh, for being available, for coming on the program. Okay, thank you so much. Take care. Well, it does uh, feel like summer, certainly felt like summer this past weekend. That means a lot of people will be looking for summer jobs, mainly students probably looking for the part-time, possibly full-time work. As you've been hearing in the news, the minimum wage is set to go up as well. What about scams, though? Unfortunately, there are scams that are also becoming a bit more popular or uh, we're seeing them out there. So joining me to talk more about this is Carla Laird, the manager of Community and Public Relations at the Better Business Bureau. Carla, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Has it become worse as far as people looking for employment and being targeted by scammers during the pandemic? It actually has. And when we looked at our BBB scam tracker reports that were coming in from the public across the province, we were seeing where the report, at least a number of reports, definitely went up. We saw where the sophistication of the scams also went up. And if we're even just looking at, you know, the fact that people were either furloughed or had to be laid off or it's a case where businesses closed down or had to downscale their operations, there was a growing demand for jobs last year and a little bit of into this year as well. And so because of that, more people are looking, scammers recognize this need and they're definitely capitalizing on it. So what should students then, specifically students looking for maybe temporary summer jobs, be on the lookout for? One of the biggest things that has popped up for us where students are concerned or the risk to students is where the scammers are impersonating legitimate companies. And we see, for instance, the two popular ones that they tend to impersonate are Walmart and Amazon. And they'll come with these different jobs that sound very similar, you know, customer service representative or mystery shopper. And it sounds very legitimate. They have a lot of the same verbiage or, you know, the words that would be in that same post from these legitimate organizations. But it's a case of a complete scam. If you go on the legitimate Amazon or Walmart website, these job postings are not there. And so is that what somebody should do then? If you see this job posting or you're targeted, maybe you see it in a social media feed or somewhere else, go to the actual company website and see if it's also posted there? Yes, that's definitely the biggest recommendation. And ultimately, when it comes to avoiding these kinds of scams, research, research, research. That's the biggest thing that's going to help to keep you safe. I mean, just last week, I actually got a call from a parent who said her child got this email that had an opportunity for a summer internship with an organization that claimed to be based in Gaston. And she had never heard of the organization before, called us to see if we could just check to see anything we have on this company. And it turns out the company is a complete fabrication. It does not exist. They literally just stole a commercial address in Gaston, posted it on their website, created a website within, what, two months, two months ago, and had that 
posted social media accounts, all of those things to make themselves appear and seem legitimate. And so it turns out that's just a, one example of the nightmare. And, but at the same time, the sophistication that goes into these employment scams. I understand as well, a lot of these scams or many of these scams are also targeting people who are working from home. Yes, so people looking to work from home or trying to get new job opportunities that gives them that same flexibility. And it's understandable. So many things have happened in the last 15 months. People's lifestyles have changed. If you didn't have a pet before, you do now. And now the thought of going back out into the workforce and leaving your pet at home might be challenging. And so with all of that into play, people are looking for remote working opportunities. But at the same time, that's what the scammers are riding on. So they'll say you can get a good salary, awesome company compensation package and the flexibility of working from home and they'll use that as the pitch but then when you check it out you either end up working for several weeks for for an employer that doesn't exist it's a case where if you're not careful you might end up participating in a scam where you're using your personal account to do business for this quote-unquote employer but at the end of the day you know you end up in trouble with a fraudulent check that was deposited to your account so there's so many different ways that they tend to victimize people but ultimately all scams and all things you need to be aware of Uh, I didn't uh, realize too but it seems like uh, from looking at this something if you get a job offer or you apply you see an ad for a job uh, that has the description of being a warehouse redistribution coordinator that should be a red flag Yes. And so when we looked at some of these um, different scam reports that came into us, they were there were certain job titles that tended to be used by the scammers over and over again. So like you said, warehouse redistribution coordinator, and those were um, typically for the Amazon related jobs. We saw where they were also using mystery shopper, administrative assistant, caregiver, customer service representative. They tend to use these jobs that you don't necessarily need a lot of skills and training for but ultimately if you are ready and willing to work it's easy for you to learn and that's what they use to pull people in especially if you're you probably have a job already you want something on the side or you don't have the capacity to be doing a full-time job this could be something that works out for you so that's how they try to pitch it and then there's also the case where you're you think you're signing up for something that's legitimate, it's easy, and but they put that put that big wage compensation on top of it, and that's how they catch a lot of people too. Uh, when you have a legitimate job, part of the application process is providing a social insurance number or banking information because you know you might get your checks automatically deposited into your account. Right. So, what kind of checks do you make sure or due diligence do you have to do at that point before you know it's okay to give that information to a new employer? Well, as a starting point, when you're giving that kind of information, it's usually once you have been fully onboarded in the sense that you've received a job offer, you signed that contract, and as part of your recruitment process, you now have to share that information, and which is something that would typically happen in your job process. But what's important is at what point are they asking you for this information? So we've seen in our reports where um, people have shared with us that, hey, they were asking me this during my interview for me to share my social insurance number because they need to verify who I am. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that is required. So and that's where it's extremely important. And then even if you've started working and you notice that they're asking you to do transactions through your bank account, they're asking you to share your credit card information or to share your bank account account with their your bank account numbers with them so that they can deposit money for you to carry out a part of the job 
huge red flag. And this one seems like a, a bit of a no-brainer, but I, I don't mean to say that because uh, people will fall for this and that's that's not your fault if you fall for this. But it does seem like it, m- this is one that people would catch on to if an employer paid you too much and said, oh, sorry, we overpaid you and then asks for the money back or asks that you send gift cards or send it somewhere else. Yes, it is a no-brainer and it, it should be, but the truth is because of how sophisticated these scammers are, they make the reason seem so legitimate. So speaking to some of the victims, we've heard that, you know, they said to us that they sent the amount by mistake. But since you already have the cash, maybe you could just save us a part of that process of returning it by just forwarding it to this third party. Or it could be a case of, you know, well, you're going to be training in a couple of weeks and you have to pay for this training. So instead of sending us back the money, just send it somewhere else. So lots of what could be taken as legitimate reasons for giving you that extra money. But at the end of the day, if you are getting a check that's valued more than you're supposed to be getting, my recommendation is don't deposit it to your account, send it back to the employer and ask for the amount to be the right amount returning return the right amount to you that is one clear way and if you don't get that kind of response where they're ready to make the make the amends treat that as a red flag and if you always have doubts get the bank to double check that check before they deposit it and what if you've given up some of that information whether it's your social insurance number or your banking information you realize now you've shared it with what you thought was a legitimate company but they're not what kind of recourse or what plan of action should you go to in that scenario That's a very good question. So when it comes to your social insurance number, I would like to say treat this as the utmost priority, with the utmost priority. So with that particular number, remember it identifies you to the government. It is who you are. It is what everyone used to point back to you as an individual. So if that number has been compromised, you must report it right away. And so you're going to go to Service Canada or contact them as soon as possible to let them know what has happened, the circumstances under which it has taken place. And so they would be able to walk you through the steps of what you can do to you know, prevent any further damage, because that kind of information could put you at risk of identity theft. So the other thing to point out as well is you also want to reach out to some of our credit bureaus. So whether it's Equifax or TransUnion, have them set up a fraud alert on your file, which is basically in the event that someone is trying to take out some form of credit. So whether it's a new credit card or some kind of loan, it's ultimately something that would result in them getting cash that you would have to be responsible for. You would be able to get a notification before this before this um, line of credit is approved. And then the final thing is if it's your bank account information, your credit card details, reach out to your bank, let them know what has happened, have them issue a new credit card that these persons don't have any information for and new debit cards as well. So that way it helps to protect your, your cash that you have there. So taking immediate steps is always key. All right. Good information and good to keep in mind if someone thinks that they maybe have fallen victim to one of these scams. Carla, thanks so much for joining us again. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Take care.